The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. We are a sick nation. We're not even into winter yet and the health service is already on its knees. Ambulances backed up outside A&E, old ladies who've fallen, left waiting for hours for help. It's a nightmare to get a GP appointment and if you do get one, the chances of actually seeing the doctor is remote. And the pandemic means waiting lists for operations have now reached absurd levels. Health outcomes here do not compare well with our G7 partners. Yet the NHS was once the envy of the world. Medical care free for all at the point of delivery, a global first. Detractors say the NHS has become a secular religion, something that no politician dares to meddle with. But surely there has to be a way to make it better, to make it actually work? So what's the prescription? That's our subject today. The why. Curve. So you know what, Roger, I do think this this point that we said in the introduction about this secular religion, I think that is part of the problem. This idea that you, you should not have to pay anything for the NHS, irrespective of how much money you earn, uh, is uh, has, well, just, yeah, has yeah. just got to go. We've got to change that why? attitude. But why have we got to? Because the point is that was what made it unique, and that is what makes it a, a huge comfort blanket, if you like, for the nation. Because right. that's what it is. You but know. it can be a comfort blanket for the people on low income. I mean, people on high well, income. Yeah, if they can afford their health care, because otherwise, how far do you go? Because people are living longer. We know the cost of medicine is getting more expensive. You know, I mean, imagine, for example, if we found that there was a, a million pound drug that could make us all live five years longer. Should we spend a million pounds per but, person? But we so have can- a system to determine that. We have it. We have a National Institute of Clinical Excellence that examines these kind of things and then recommends Puts a value on life. Yeah. Puts well, a value it, on life. Is that what they do? Well, they have to. There mm. has to be an, a, a valuing of outcomes compared to costs. And that's not easy. And that's happening in America. That's happening in Australia. They are all doing this in mm. terms of putting value in that way. But going back to the point about what you're going to do in terms of paying for it, yes, that's got to be a consideration because if it is going to remain free for all, Mm. Uh, and even and maybe there is an, a possibility of having some areas where some people can pay more, but they mustn't get a greater advantage because the classic thing is you have to have everyone on an equal footing well, in terms yeah, of their health. That is the big ethical question, isn't it? Can, should you be able to live longer because you're richer? But of course, you know, irrespective well, of what the NHS private does, medicine. Yeah. People do, don't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a but, big... But there is always a basic service, a good service, the mm. best service mm. that is available for everybody. And that is crucial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's uh, nothing will change so long as we have this idea yeah. that everything should be paid for at the point. Well, of, well something has like, to change because the system as it is isn't mm. working. And we, yeah. we know that. We see yeah. it all around at the moment. Mm. Now, is it just a matter of resources? And, and this is these questions we need to ask. Is it the number of doctors? Is it the amount of money put into uh, to, to nursing? Is it the number of hospitals. Do you remember Boris Johnson was going to build 40 new hospitals? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Didn't why, a shame, why a shame he's not around anymore? Mm. I wonder how many got built in the end. Maybe uh, that's a question we, we will can... ask. Yeah. But, but no, the point, the point is there has to be a reconsideration mm. of what we provide, how much it costs, and how much we're prepared to put in for it. But also, as you say, there is a question of people paying well, we know that from the very outset of the NHS, they actually decided they were going to charge for things like uh, spectacles and false yeah. teeth and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I mean, that is, yeah, and, you know, if you want to have your, uh, your teeth seen too, for example, or you want to get your eyes seen too, then there's, you have to pay a lot in those instances as well. So it's not universal, is it? But the other thing as well is this big concern about privatisation of the NHS. Uh, and, you know, it's that already exists, doesn't it, in many, many ways. You go and see a GP, for example, they are if private. You get, if you can. If you can, good luck. 
work with that. But they are, you know, privately run companies. They're getting funded by the NHS, but they're individual companies that are doing that. So in a way, that's sort of privatised. And and does does that mean that you've got people running these as businesses? Uh, What's their motive versus the motive of looking after patients? Well, the motive changes depending on who actually is the ultimate owner of all this. And if you have big, uh, let's say American, but it can be other health corporations taking over large units of the NHS in the way, large units of the primary healthcare service, Mm. that is a risk because it is, uh, as many people would say, uh, a bit of a wedge. You know, the thin end of it, the fact that we are moving towards a system that some ways resembles the American system. Yeah, but maybe there's some... I love the fact, by the way, that this week it seems like we have uh, switch roles and I'm becoming the uh, the dogmatic right-winger and yes. you're, you're becoming yes. the... No, I'm, the, I'm very the far lefty. out on the left yeah. on this one, yes. Uh, but, I mean, I did, maybe there are bits of them. I mean, we can't look at America and say we've got to follow that in, in full because just the top-line figures tell us that's wrong. They spend twice as much on health and they've got a, a lower life expectancy than we have in this country. But the idea that you've got private companies that uh, that do take control... Um, maybe if they if if they're measured right, ah. maybe they'll drive efficient the efficiencies that we need, and that's the big thing as well. How do we create the efficiency to get the best outcome? The question is, what is that outcome? Is the outcome if the outcome is profit, then that's a bad outcome. Well, it the, always the, is with private companies. It can't be otherwise. Well, we know from the provision of health services or health equipment during the COVID emergency how that worked out. I mean, mm. money was the root of the supply, inevitably, private companies. And let's say there were a few dark corners going to be exposed potentially in this uh, inquiry. But anyway, there's a lot to talk about, a lot to dig into. There must be some ideas out there about how we can change things. We're going to talk to Tim Gardner. He's Senior Policy Fellow at the Health Foundation. It's an independent charity looking into healthcare. He was also a, a former senior civil servant in the Department of Health and Social Care. So he does know about the inner workings of all this. And he joins us now. Tim, hello. So, Tim, I guess something has to change, doesn't it, in that, uh, you know, we have a, an ageing population and, you know, I imagine that the cost of healthcare is just only going to increase, not just because there's a, because of that ageing population and a growing population, but also, you know, medicine is getting more expensive. We are making innovations that perhaps mean we can live longer and that adds more to the, to the cost. Something's got to break at some point, hasn't it, if it hasn't already? Well, I mean, it's really interesting looking at uh, health systems around the world. We're not the only country that's facing this this dilemma. Everywhere is is facing the, this issue of increased costs of um, how you harness the the potential of, of medical technologies to to improve care. Um, we we are far from alone in facing these dilemmas, um, and it's it's really, I think, not the case that. Um, the health system that we have in the UK is some sort of runaway prolificate, prolificate spender um, that is spending far more than, than other countries. Um, but we are unusual, Tim, in, in having a system that, you know, established in, in 1948 that, you know, free, free at the point of delivery um, without some kind of uh, insurance type system in the background. It's fairly unusual to have our model these days, isn't it? Um, it's not that unusual, actually. There are there are various other countries in Europe. Um, Italy, for example, has has quite a similar model um, in North America. Canada has a, a, a model that actually looks a lot like the health service. Um, Tax-funded systems aren't, are not that unusual. Have we assumed too much, though, because of, because of the NHS? We, we have this idea that 
it should always be free because in effect we've paid for it you know that's people's in in people's minds i've already paid for this with my tax and uh, therefore i shouldn't have to pay any more and yet you know in reality there's a load of people who obviously could afford to pay and there's a load of people who can't afford to pay don't we have to reach the point where we say this idea it's free at the point of delivery perhaps that's a bit old-fashioned and we need to revisit that now um, I don't think so. So I, I think it, it's it's definitely the case that the system that we've got, the health service, um, provides a really high level of financial protection from from the, the costs of, of ill health. But that's not a unique achievement. Um, while the UK is, is it ranks really well on that measure, um, lots of other countries provide a similar level of protection. Um, we're not an outlier by by any um, by any means at all. Um, mm. So I think the notion that um, other countries there are lots of you know there, there there is more burden on the user you know pe- people at the point of that they use um, healthcare. Um, it's different certainly. Um, other countries, you know, there are lots of different charges and fees. But, but, but let me give you an ex- yeah, let me give you an example because I lived uh, for for twenty six years uh, in Australia, and through most of that time, I had the same doctor. Now I know times have changed. Maybe if I was in Australia now, that w- that wouldn't be the case. But uh, we and he knew everything about me, and I used to see him once once a year to have a, a full checkup. So he basically, you know, he, uh, took me down a, a preventative road, so I didn't get too too ill. Um, he couldn't do anything about the alcohol consumption, unfortunately, even though he kept on talking to me about it. Um, but I mean, it, but I paid to see him, and um, it, I, I can't remember. It's like twenty-five or forty dollars, perhaps, which was the gap fee. Uh, now I didn't have to go and see him. I could go and see a what they called a, a bulk billing uh, uh, surgery, where uh, you, you would be seen for free. You'd have to wait for longer. You wouldn't have a. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily see the same doctor. So there was like like a two tier system. Uh, so there was a sort of like a, you know, everyone was covered, but if you wanted to pay more, you got a bit more. And that system seemed to work fairly well, because as I say, I saw the same doctor, uh, you know, for 25 or 26 years. Would that work here, Tim? Could it work? Um, I, I, I don't think so, frankly. Um, it's something that has been suggested quite a lot. Um, but in, in general, it's quite hard to design a system that charges people to access care that is a fair and efficient way of raising extra revenue. Um, One of the big advantages we do have in in the UK with a tax-funded health system is that the tax system exists and it's relatively progressive and relatively efficient in the first place. So if we want to increase the total amount that we spend on healthcare because we want to get a better service, by far the most efficient and progressive and fairest way of doing that is, is to pay more in taxes. Rather but but Tim, we're talking we're talking as if the whole thing is actually pretty good and we're doing okay. But I mean, if you look across the the system as it is now, in comparison with G seven outcomes, health outcomes for people in other comparable G seven countries, if you just look at the daily records of people waiting for ambulances, ambulances backed up outside A and E wards, lack of GPs, lack of being able to get GP appointments, the general feeling people have is there's a system that isn't working, and we're on we're not quite in winter yet, and the health service. Certainly people I talk to who work in it say it's already on its knees. So something is going badly wrong, isn't it? I, I wouldn't disagree at all that, that something is clearly badly amiss with, with our system. I think what it comes back to, though, is, is that a feature of our system in particular, or is that a, a function of 
the amount we have invested in that system over the t- over time and how well we run it because there's nothing that is fundamentally incompatible with a tax-based system like the health service and deciding to recruit more GPs, for for instance, or having more paramedics, having more capacity in hospital beds. There, you know, it, it comes down to a political choice. If we were willing to have made that choice and, and committed to it, then we would be in a better position than we are now. So just spend more is what you're saying? I think not necessarily just spend more. I mean, money is, if, you know, if, if we had a blank check arriving from government overnight, which obviously we're not going to happen, it's, it's not going to cure all of the problems that we've got, certainly. But I think what we saw, uh, we have seen before you know, in the history of the NHS before, that when there has been sustained level of investment and a sustained focus on improving how the system operates, then actually we see performance improve um, quite rapidly. I mean, one of the areas that we are, you know, that we constantly hear that the UK is lagging behind on is cancer survival. Actually, I mean, which is true. We are not where we want to be on cancer survival. But actually, the picture over the last over the 10, 15, 20 years, even before the pandemic, certainly, I'm still waiting on data to see what, what impact that's had, is that actually we were improving faster than most other countries and we were closing that gap and catching up and that was very much during that period where there was some serious investment and reform going into our system which period are we talking was this like the blair period or the the brown era when we were talking about new hospitals new hospitals certainly arrived and we talking about the last 10 years last 20 years we're i think we're mainly talking about the period from the sort of late 90s um, to, to the sort of very early 2010s, yeah. And are we getting sicker as a nation? Are we getting more of a call on our health service because we are generally unhealthier? I mean, you know, it gets back to that preventative question. Should we be doing more to try and prevent people getting sick in the first place? Well, we should definitely prevent do more to prevent people from getting sick in the first place, although that's there's only so much that any health service um, can, can do to, to keep us healthy. Um, so we should definitely do take wider action to improve our health. Um, are we getting sicker? I mean, I think, as you said earlier, we've got an aging population. In in many ways, that's 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 brilliant. But part, we've partly gotten there because some of the really nasty, contagious diseases or non-contagious diseases that used to kill us off quite early, um, we're better at treating. We're better at preventing it. We're better at treating it. So we live longer. We're not necessarily though living uh, in perfect health for that much longer so we're not necessarily sicker um but we are certainly more but this is this is where it shades him into social care isn't it really isn't that the problem that where health where healthcare and social care mix in a way we have people who are old and vulnerable and, and perhaps not in the best of health not necessarily should be in hospitals but often are because where else do they go and it's the ethical question as well that sits behind all of this isn't it because my my father-in-law uh, died many years ago now uh, but uh, they basically turned off his ventilator and uh, he was american uh, and this was this was in a, in australia not in this country and uh, and his american relatives were aghast at the decision to turn off that ventilator they said in america they would have just kept it on but there was no way he was going to recover so how much to spend on on health to perpetuate i mean that's maybe an extreme example but how much to spend on people who are not do not have a good quality of life as well there's a, that that's the big ethical question isn't it and as we as we live longer how much do we spend to try and enable that longer life 
Well, I, I think there's there's also a, a very rela- related question to that, which is an excellent point, which is actually, are we interested more in extending quantity of life or are we equally interested in quality of life? So one of the, the parts of this, the complexity of having an aging population is that we've got more people with uh, long-term conditions, uh, things like diabetes, heart disease, um, and more people who've got multiple long-term conditions, plus also coupled with with social care needs as well. So, you know, we we need to be as concerned about improving people's quality of life as we are about extending length of life. Now, I think the point about social care and its interaction with the health service is a really good one. You know, we have a health service that is comprehensive, universal and free at point of use, which is great. Our social care system, however, as I'm sure you know, works on a completely different basis. And there is an enormous amount of unmet need for care. Um, a good NH- you know, a strong NHS needs a strong system of social care to work with it hand in glove. And without that, I mean, that, that's partly why we're seeing some of the issues that, that we see in the health service now. And that all comes down in the end to money, because, you know, we would like to be able to spend as much as we need to keep everybody in the best condition possible, whether it's in social care or in hospitals. But is there a point where there is not, uh, to use the awful phrase, the magic money tree, if we don't have enough money and we have to carve it up into particular areas, where should we be spending it? Do we have the right priorities now? Well, as you say, there is no magic money tree. And, and believe me, I have I have gone and looked. Um, but we're not operating at the outer ceiling of, of what is spent by by a range of other of other countries. I mean, the, some of the countries we might want to compare ourselves to, um, if we think in Europe, you know, France or, or Germany um, tax more and they spend more. So just to give you, just to put some some numbers on this. So in 2019, so before the pandemic, before any of that you know, skewed some of the numbers. Um, the government spent about £2,650 per person in the UK. Um, that was a bit more than the OECD average, but France spent 3300 per person. This is an annual spend on, on health per, per person. year. And yeah. annual government spend. So France spent 3300 per person compared to us, 2650 Germany, even more. £4,100 per person. Even in the USA, which has got a quite heavily private system, government spending on health in the USA is nearly £7,000 per person. So we're not um, at that sort of upper limit on, on how much we can spend. It's really a choice. If we want, it's a, it's a, it's a political choice. It's a, it's a choice for us as citizens. If we wanted to spend more, then there's nothing to say that we couldn't. So is that the only answer that you, there is, really, that we need to spend more money? Because there's the danger, isn't there? If you spend more money on anything, then uh, progressively uh, the efficiency starts to dwindle and you're not getting value for money. And is there a way that you could look at other models, like, for example, some sort of public-private partnership, or is that just devil talk as far as you're concerned? <laughs> it's, it's certainly not... The, more money is certainly not the only answer, but it is a big part of of what the answer needs to be. In fact, another part of, of the answer really is, is, is not how much we spend in any given year. It's about the stability of the, the budget that we spend, we give to the, the health service and, and what else we do. So, you know, our, our system 
is 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 relatively is is heavily determined by government. It's the government that sets the total annual NHS budget, rather than a bunch of insurance funds or um, clinical decisions. Um, so it's quite good on cost control, um, but governments can be a bit short-termist, as 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 you may know. So it can undermine the health service's ability to plan ahead and make some of those longer term decisions that it needs to and to be able to spend the money it has in the most efficient way. So stability of investment is quite important. Yeah, so the 40 hospitals promised by Boris Johnson, for example, did not turn up, did they? I think we're still looking for them, yes. Um, So there's, there's definitely something around stability and predictability of investment. And there is also, the solution is never just money. There is a need to to focus on how you use technology, how you transform services to do more to prevent ill health, how you wrap care around the needs of individuals who aren't just presenting with one single curable condition. They're presenting with multiple conditions um, and, and have you know uh, quite complex needs. Well, on that very specific point which you address there, which which is something I think you know where people encounter the NHS most commonly, and that is trying to get a GP appointment. And you know you talk about the technology. Well, we've we've moved into but uh, remote consultations uh, at some of the time. Even if you can get a GP appointment, the GP experience for many people is not satisfactory, and it is uh, as Phil pointed out, it's actually a bit of a private in the state system anyway. GP surgeries are generally private companies that are brought in to do the work of primary health care. Is that an efficient system? And given what people are experiencing at the moment, it doesn't seem to work. Is there a way of improving it? Do we need to go back to face-to-face appointments? Is that just old thinking, ignoring technology? Uh, Walk us through some of that. Um, It's a really complicated question, that one. So, in some ways, yes, technology can be can be really, really helpful. And we did see that really come to the fore during the pandemic. Um, but one, what we really see as, as driving some of these problems with getting access to a GP appointment, and you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, seeing the GP that when you when you want the want the GP that you want to see, um, which is really important to some people, not so much to others, not so much to other in other it's an it's an age thing, it is, isn't it? But it, no, I think for anybody it is useful, isn't it? If you go and see a GP, they know you, they know your yeah, history. But but my daughter, for example, will you know, she'll take a, an appointment with anyone who's available if necessary through her company's private health scheme, you know, those kind of things too. I think it is an age related thing. I, I think age I, age has, does have quite a strong bearing on it. But I think situation also has has another um factor on it as well. You know, if I've got um, you know, a sick child at home and I'm really worried, I just want to see someone who I know is a competent professional and I'm not too worried about who I see. If, however, I've got a regular checkup coming up, then I might want to prioritise seeing the GP that I know and that I, I trust and who knows me as well. Um, but if we want this, then we need to make sure that we've got enough GPs to care for a growing population. Now, we've got about 4,000 vacancies for GPs right at the moment. If we continue as we are in terms of how many people we train, how many people we lose out of general practice every year, then projections that have been done by the Health Foundation suggest that we may end up with um, a lot more vacancies in the future, potentially double the number that so we've why? got now. So what's, why? What, what's is, is it pay is the problem? Conditions? I think it's 
I think it's mainly working conditions. Being a GP is an incredibly stressful job. Um, I mean, it's difficult. It's stressful enough trying to get a GP appointment at the moment. So just imagine how stressful it must be being the GP on the receiving end of, of, of some of that. So, you know, there are international surveys that, uh, that we've been involved with that, that of, of GPs that ask people, ask GPs about how satisfied are, we, are they with general practice and practicing medicine? What are their plans for continuing? And those surveys have shown quite consistently, UK GPs are among the most stressed of high-income countries. Now, about 15 years ago, so it's going back a bit, when telemedicine was being talked about, I, I, I did a podcast, because podcasts were still around then as well. Uh, Professor Clayton Christensen uh, in the United States, I spoke to about, you know, were we ready for telemedicine? And he said the, the problem is you, health services uh, need to organise themselves for it. And he gave the example uh, of a private company, Kaiser Permanente, in, in, in the US, and he said the, the one benefit, apart from obviously it's driven for, the, for a profit motive, but the, the one benefit of Kaiser Permanente is that it employs everybody. So you go and see a GP, they, they work for the company. They, they refer you to a specialist, they work for the company. You go and see a surgeon or you go into hospital. Everyone who sees you works for the company. So he said the benefit of that is uh, they still want the, you know, the right outcome. Otherwise, nobody would be using them for healthcare, but they also want to reduce costs so that they make a bigger profit. So actually, you said the profit motive in, in that sort of situation works well because it's all about driving the efficiency while still getting the, the, the right income. And the efficiency comes because if you go and see a GP and he says, right, you need to go and see a specialist, they all work for the same company. So he can send an email. They can use telemedicine. He can say, well, let's get him. Let's see if he's available right now. Let's do it this second. Uh, and you share information, and you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you go and see the And uh, it's the, less the stressful, specialist. presumably. And it's just getting whatever whatever it takes to get the job done. He said less process is needed because people are just working together on a solution. His point was that you know, a company like that is working to make a profit. But if you had the same ethos applied to a public company uh, where you know your your top line measure presumably would be health outcomes rather than than profit you'd still see those same efficiencies being driven but of course you know we have separate gps separate hospitals uh, 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 specialists who are charging a, a you know a great deal of money uh, wouldn't it be better if we actually had, you know, we, we, we went one or all? You know, we either had a totally privatised system like uh, like Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente and the government pays into it, right. or we had a, a system which is just completely public funded and everyone worked for it. Uh, it's an interesting question. And I think it's worth it's worth highlighting that not all GP practices are, practices are private. Um, mm. quite, and not all GPs either. Quite a few GPs, I think it's a, a growing number, are are in are effectively are employees themselves, right? And uh, who work 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 for the NHS. So we are kind of heading, in some respects, in that model. I think the, the proof of the pudding is 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 really in in the eating. So the test is really: can we um, come up with a, a system that allows GPs and specialists to work together in the the same sort of way that you've described? Now. I think you know NHS England is definitely pushing in that direction at the moment, um, as a you know, certainly as a measure to try and address some of the backlogs that that grew up over the last few years. Um, there have been has been a push to try and give GPs more access to specialist advice before they have to refer someone. So these sorts of innovations are happening. We may not see them; they may not hit the headlines too much, um, but there is a, a drive to try and make sure some of that stuff happens. So it'll be very interesting over the next few years to see how that shakes out and how well it I, does. 
Because I, you know, I gave the example of going to see having the checkup with my doctor in Australia, and he he did everything. You know, he did the ECG, he did a prostate check, he sent off the blood samples, uh, he uh, you know checked my blood pressure. He he just did it all in an hour, basically. I went through the same thing because I had to go and see a doctor because of you know a, a thing related to getting old uh, and uh, and your heart. And you know the upshot was actually pretty much the same that my my other doctor used to say. He say, hey Phil, you've got to lose weight. Uh, but I went to, went to have all of those things done, and I had six separate appointments to go and see specialists so you know someone else would do the ecg someone you know different so streamlining then is is the answer i mean that's kind of what you're saying isn't it tim that this is the way forward absolutely absolutely this is something that is facing um this is not easy to do and it's not easy to do in in any health system it's one of you know we, we we've talked a bit about how you know, some health, you know, health systems are organized in very, very different ways, but actually they're all facing some quite similar challenges and finding ways to change how you deliver services and ways to incentivize that and make sure that happens is, is a pretty common challenge. Some places have cracked it, but I, I'm not aware of any systems that have, have cracked it at national level. There are pockets of really in that example, though, I mean, if my GP, and I don't know whether he's, he's, he's private, I think it is a, a, a private consultation, but if he'd said, oh, well, look, you know, let's do a 40-minute appointment, I'll, I'll get it all done, that would, that would have to have been a more efficient way, wouldn't it? It would have used far less resources, it would have been better for me, it would have been, you know, and he would have, been, he would have got a, a quick picture. I mean, just so much time would have been saved, but also so much money. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, th- I think people... In, in in this country, are, you know, professionals in this country are absolutely up for that, um, but it's it's not easy. It's not always easy to to make that happen all the time, particularly when we're losing a lot of those professionals because they're getting out because they don't like the way the system is now. Well, um, I think partly it's it's a factor of the system. Although I think when you talk about GPs, there, you know, I think there are countries where 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 GPs. Um, are, are more critical of the system. I think it's also about the the level of pressure on the system and the amount of people within the system to absorb those pressures too. Well, the pressures are the big issue. Let's, I mean, let's move from GPs now to, to the hospital, which is the other A&E. I mean, the classic tale at the moment, of course, is ambulances backed up, people waiting for hours and hours and hours to get any ambulance to bring them in. And when they do, uh, they have this wait they can't get in. I mean, there seems to be something, and I suppose the A&E is where it's focused, just because that's where we see it. But some people are saying the problem for A&E is that people are going there by not going to their GPs because they're not likely to get there. So it's a system that is turning in on itself uh, and revealing its inefficiencies. Well, I think what we what we're seeing is um, this the result of years of failing to invest enough in the workforce and the infrastructure that we need to to meet the demand that that we've got from a bigger population. So, um, you know, before the before COVID um, in the UK, numbers of doctors, nurses, hospital beds. Um, were among some of the very lowest in Europe. The way that we made the system work was by running hospitals and other services at very close to maximum capacity for most of the time. But what that left was very little resilience to the sort of sudden spike in demand that we saw in 2020. And I think what we're seeing now is, you know, whilst, yes, we're living with COVID, we've had the vaccinations um, life seems to be returning to normal, but there are still lots of little extra stresses now on all the different bits of our health service that we weren't seeing quite so much in 2019. And that's just tipped things over and it's caused the system to to gunk up and slow down 
um, in every little bit. And that that just has mag- it magnifies the consequences that we see um, all, all throughout the health service. So you know, GPs are busy supporting patients who are, are struggling to get seen in hospital. So getting an appointment for anything is getting harder. Um, equally, hospitals are struggling to, to admit people because they haven't got the bed spare. Um, they can't. They don't have the spare beds because we don't have enough social care or community health services to allow some of those patients to be discharged promptly. It, it's a system-wide problem, and I think it's it's not that we're being overwhelmed by numbers of patients. I think it is just things being a, becoming a little bit more pressured and a little bit more difficult, and just a few more staff shortages have just tipped things over into the situation that we see now. But I wonder how much of it is also organisational, like, for example, that difference between the NHS and, uh, and and social care. And if if the government, I mean, it's not going to happen from this government, if the government was to say, hey, look, we'll give you a heap more money, but you've got to give us something back. What are you going to do to make sure that money is is spent more efficiently? Would the would the uh, would the health sector have an answer to that? I think it, I think it would. Yeah. I mean, I think the health sector's top asks at the moment are for a a comprehensive workforce strategy so that we're training and recruiting more staff and doing more to hold on to the staff that we've got and make the most of them. I think another ask would be to invest and reform in the social care system to, to meet, you know, to meet a lot of the needs that are currently going unmet um, to address working conditions for care workers that can be bettered by supermarkets um, and to to reduce some of the reliance that we put on on unpaid carers. The other thing that we we kind of talked about a bit here is the NHS is not the only part of of, of what we do in this country that creates health and makes us healthy. There are a whole range of, of things that the conditions in which we're born, in which we grow up, in which we work, and which we grow old. Those are some of those that has a much bigger impact on how healthy we are throughout our lives. And there's an awful lot more that could be done to make us healthier as a country. The NHS it, it sounds it sounds great, Tim. But the point we, we do you see any sign that anything you're talking about, which is a kind of social revolution in terms both of taxing and spending uh, and being able to deal with I mean, social care has defied God knows how many administrations. Plus, also, as you say, uh, favoring better social conditions for people to grow up in the first place. So they're, they're they are better in terms of their health. I mean, that all sounds wonderful, but it, there's no prospect of that happening, is there? Well, I have to. I have to say, I, I remain an eternal optimist. <laughs> I have to. I've worked in this field for over twenty years. Um, I, I we we can do it. I mean, the a, a lot of the you know the, the suggestions that we need to have you know cross party consensus or we need a royal commission. Um, actually, we know what needs to be done. Um, we just need to to commit to, to getting on and doing it. Um, we need to go for a run. That's what we need to do. I mean, if we, I, I, I tell you, I've lost. Uh, I don't know how many times on this podcast I mentioned that. Well, yeah, I've got to get some. some he's absolutely credit. fading away. There's virtually nothing left. I've of it. lost sixteen or seventeen kilos in a couple of months, and it's because I was concerned about my health. I put on too much weight. And now I go running, and it just falls. And you know, I'm yeah, eating but, less. It falls off you. But, it, but you can't do that if you've it, got some long term medical. No, absolutely, you can't. There's a limit to personal. 
for sure. But I mean, if we had something that was the equivalent of the Great British Bake Off, which you know it got us all into the kitchen, supposedly, you know, the Great <laughs> British put, Run Off, put lots of pounds on, I should think, <laughs> exactly, Almost doing inevitably. the damage. That's right. Take it off TV. Maybe we'll all be better off. Yeah. But I mean, that is, I don't know. That's you've got to change the attitude of the nation, haven't you? And that's uh, and and I think because we see the NHS, we think we've got that as a stopgap. I wonder whether that actually makes people feel as though they are secure and they don't have to look after themselves quite as much quite quite possibly quite possibly and, and as you say these these are lo- this is not a, a quick fix or, or or a short-term issue this is a long-term challenge um but the longer we leave it the less that we do now the more it's going to end up costing us in in the long run um and, and there's simply no way around that um it, it's it's one of those things. It's gonna you know it 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 will have a it will take years to pay off um, and come back, but it can pay off and it, it can you know in the short you know government it, it's that 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 old saying isn't it that governments massively overestimate how much they can achieve in the short term, but they massively underestimate how much they can achieve in the longer term. A good thought to end on. Thanks so much, Tim, uh, for walking us around what might be a, a good prescription for the NHS if only it would happen. Um, but uh, I suppose, as you say, we one should remain optimistic. But thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion. Keep finding the fight, Tim. Good to talk. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. So yeah, well, I mean, wh- where do we go from there? Because well, I. I- <laughs> He, he was optimistic, but also yes. it's going to take time. And we know. It reminds me of what my doctor says to me, actually, very much. <laughs> it's going to take, oh, it's going to take it's a take long a time. a long time, but he'll be all right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is fascinating. And, you know, he's, he is prescribing, of course, uh, more resources, more mm. money. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, one has to, one, one doesn't have to be particularly politically astute to say that is a very long shot right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do still think that there's the, the question about whether there's a, a private sector involvement. Are in you keen on this? Well, I don't, and, and look, it, this is very unusual difference. for me. I'm, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's, anyway, maybe that's something we can explore uh, in, in future weeks. Perhaps we'll just look at the private angle uh, and yeah. get someone on to, to argue their side of the case. But uh, And look at some of the evidence from overseas as well. Look, uh, so that's one uh, important social service yes. covered. But once uh, you're all nice and healthy and go walking out on the street... It's not much good if you're going to get mugged, is quite, it? Quite, quite. So, that was bringing on to our next subject which is the police yeah because I mean it's worth looking at all of these isn't it because who knows who's going to survive yeah. uh, with this government you know how, how where the cuts are going to come well and what the police the have had quite a mugging certainly the Met Police has had quite a mugging <laughs> from the government in recent times uh, f- for maybe very good reasons but they certainly seem to have lost the plot a lot of people saying what happened during the pandemic uh, gave the police powers they didn't really know what to do with or how to operate them certainly in terms of Downing Street anyway mm. um, but, but this was a, a huge change and they're not really up to it and they too are, are lacking in resources but also lacking in focus I mean you know one side people are saying oh they're too busy taking the knee and being woke to do proper policing that's certainly what the new commissioner of the Metropolitan Police is suggesting but others saying hang on you've got to police a society in a way that that society accepts and, and, and you have to be on the same level as them so we're going to explore all that mm, the police are taking a mugging that, that was your line you it are was. a walking talking headline I maker, am indeed indeed it's why I'm paid so much that's, uh, that's next uh, we're both obviously that's next week on the uh, on the Y Curve. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. The Y Curve.